You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Charlie Houston is the author of Caught Stealing, Six Bad Things, A Dangerous Man. That's the Henry Thompson trilogy. He's the author of the standalone novel, The Shotgun Rule. Thank you for joining me, Charlie. Glad to be here. Charlie, one of the things I admire most about these Joe Pitt case books is the brevity. You've done in four books what many people would do to use the same number of pages to get us an introduction. <laughs> How did you manage to achieve such a brevity? Uh, I don't, I, I think it's just, you know, natural style, you know, it's just my natural uh, inclination. It's not necessarily that I set out to, um, set out with a goal in mind to, uh, to tell a lot of story in, uh, in a short period of, of time, but the, but the style that I write in, which is first for, for the Joe Pitt books, his first person present tense, um, is very direct uh, because Joe is the narrator and he's a man of few words. That means that the narrative prose tends to be pretty brief and to the point. And uh, a great deal of the book is uh, is dialogue, and you know it's it's it's, it's stylized noir dialogue, which means it's a lot of you know clipped uh, quick one-offs. And then, um, other than that, there's not. I think if you're writing um, a, a, a vampire noir story, you're better off not letting the reader twiddle their thumbs too much. I think that the suspension of disbelief can lag if uh, if you get give too folks too much time. So um, moving things along at a clipped pace is always a good idea. And I feel. Um, very quickly, I, I tend to feel when a story starts to sag, and I and I get very anxious, and I always start irritating my wife by whining about how I feel like I'm letting you know something, whatever I'm working on, sag a little bit, but I'm not sure where the next you know roundhouse punch is coming from. Um, so I, it's 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 just the way I write; it's just what comes comes naturally, and uh, I like to keep things piling on. I like the abrupt uh, the abrupt changes, and when you change when you shift something. Uh, the direction of a plot or the nature of a character very, very quickly and, and suddenly, um, it usually eliminates a lot of, you know, interstitial baggage. Now, um, we've just uh, received Every Last Drop. This is the fourth Joe Pitt casebook. Is this the last we're going to see of Joe Pitt? Oh, no, no, no. There's a, there's a fifth book. Oh, there's, there's a, a fifth, fifth and final. <clears throat> now, um, you you say this is the fifth and final, but will you bring him back for another series? Do you think, or after after the fifth book? Yes. No, 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 no. I, uh, uh, absolutely not. The um, I I initially when I when I first conceived of the books, um, and and actually when I first talked to my uh, to my agent about them as a prospective series, I I talked about it as an open series. I thought, well, here this will be my. The, my corner post, you know, this will be the thing that I, you know, the touchstone series that I do, that I can do a book every year, and I can do other, the other things uh, around, work around that. Um, and then after I actually, 
you know, so he said, well, how many books are you thinking about? And I said, I don't know. Not, not one of those crazy series, you know, like Mac Boland, where there's 139 of them or something. <laughs> you know, I said something, I said something, I said something reasonable, you know, 15, 16 books. And he's like, Charlie, that's a lot of books. I said, I know. I, I guess I know. I said, okay, so maybe, maybe 11 or 12. And then I actually, you know, finished the first book and started work on the second book and, and realized very quickly that, um, that I was that it that it, it wasn't going to sustain my interest that long, and it, and I didn't think that I'd be able to sustain the reader's interest that long. So then I started thinking about it in terms of a five to six book um, series, which quickly became a, a five book series. Um, and I'm very committed to the idea of of the terminal series with this one. You know, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is going to die, but it definitely means that there will be a period at the end of the of the series which will um, Kind of define the end of of this story and say no, there is there is no more. Um, and I know that theoretically we're supposed to say never say never. And 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 you know, ten years from now, I could get curious to peek back at, at Joe, but um, I, I would be shocked if uh, if I did that. And there's certainly no intention to do one five book Joe Pitt series and then do another five book Joe Pitt series centering around some other big story. Now, you said when you started this, you saw it as an open-ended series. When did you realize what the series arc was, and how uh, concretely did you realize it, and how much is, are you discovering as you write the books? Um, once I made the ship, once I realized that I didn't have the energy or interest in doing an open-ended you know, series where, you know, I thought it would be a very straightforward thing where each book would be Joe's new new adventure, very much like the last adventure, except with a couple twists, and the relationships would kind of grow and evolve in a very, you know, um, uh, in a very slow, looping manner. Um, and once I realized that, that I couldn't sustain that, I needed to, to think very, very concretely about where I wanted it to go in, in a five to six book span. And... Um, that's when I realized, you know, that I that in addition to everything else, I wanted the those five to six books to um, to tell a story. Uh, I didn't want to just write five to six solo adventures of Joe Pitt. I wanted there to be a, a story that went through the whole thing. And since the, the the question that was foremost on Joe's mind as I was writing the first book, already dead, was um, he he was very naive for all intents and purposes in that book about what he was and about um, the nature of the virus that turns people into, into vampires in, 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 my, in my vampire mythology. And so it was just one of those things where it, was, it seemed clear that the best way to do it was to structure the books around the mystery of, of what is the virus and where does it come from and, and how does it work. And as important to me was the relationship that Joe has with his with his girlfriend Evie, and taking that from its start point, where Joe is a vampire and she is not. She's in, she's HIV positive, however, and uh, taking that relationship and building it through the through the five books. So those were the two the two arcs I wanted to hook the, the whole series on, and I knew fairly fairly early in the process that that was the way I wanted to go. Um. One of the things that, obviously, this, these books are, are set in New York, 
And New York's a really iconic city and has become more so since uh, 9-11. Could you talk about the influence of New York on your fiction? You, you used to live there. Now I believe you live in Southern California. Maybe you could talk about how that relocation gives you a different perspective on writing about New York. Um, yeah, it's, I think that because I write uh, hard-boiled crime and, and, you know, the, and then the, the Joe Pitt books, which are really technically they're noirs with, set in a, in a vampire demimonde. You know, they're, they're, they're more old-fashioned noir stories than they are um, traditional kind of vampire horror stories. Um, so since everything is heightened anywhere from two or three degrees, removed from real life to, with the Joe Pitt books, you know, 180 degrees removed from, from real life. Um, it's, you know, you want things to be on as firm a foundation as possible. So you want your physical environment and the, um, uh, the politics of the, of the, of the world, the way, uh, the, 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 just the, the day-to-day workings of the world to uh, to to stand up as well as strongly as possible to to carry as much verisimilitude as possible, and that wasn't again wasn't anything that uh, where I kind of created a theory of how I wanted to pursue my fiction. It was just second nature to write about the environment that I was living in. So, caught stealing my my first novel. The overwhelming bulk of the book takes place in, uh, in the East Village, where I was living at the time, and the lead character is a bartender, which I was at the time, and uh, the apartment where that lead character lives, when I, you know, describe the physical action in that apartment, the, the physical space in my head was the apartment I lived in at the time, and it just became natural. I mean, for one thing, it's just easier to write about things that you're familiar with. Um, the fact that I was living in New York was a double bonus, because the, you know, it, it is... It's beyond iconic. It is. It is uh, from the outside. It's iconic. From the inside, it's um, it's this living, breathing thing. It, it, it is uh, mythic. Yeah, mythic. That's actually the the that would help. That's there. You go, mythic. Um, and it tells. You know, if if you have any kind of interest in this kind of stuff, it tells stories to you constantly. Um, it is. It is a profoundly stimulus-rich environment. In a, in a, to the extent where parts, I find, found that parts of your brain just kind of shut down and you stop absorbing. Um, I always talk to, would talk to people about when they'd come and they'd visit for the first time, and they'd, by the, by the, they'd initially come in and they'd be so jazzed and so up, and uh, their adrenaline would be so accelerated, and they'd just be going crazy and going everywhere and seeing everything. And then around the third or fourth day, they'd crash really, really hard and just want to hide in the apartment and get away. And I think what happens is you get that first jump of that stimulus, and it is. It's really, uh, it's really invigorating. Um, and, it, and you just want to look, and you're like a, almost like a baby just wanting to absorb as much as possible. But after a while, it's also like with a baby, you get overstimulated. And if you've been living there for a while, what happens is you, it's that classic cliche of that you know the tourists in New York because they're all looking up and you know the people who live there because they're all looking down you know you start to shade out parts of your um, parts of your senses so that you can just live in that environment because it's so dense so if you have any kind of an urge towards storytelling and you're living there I think it's inevitable 
that that at some point, uh, if not right off the bat, you're going to want to want to write about that. So it was just natural. It was just second nature to write about it, write write that way. And you know, like all uh, you know, first time novelists, it's the cliche about writing what you're most familiar with. And even though I was writing about um, crime and violence and a lot of things that I that are not a part of my world, the the, the physical world and the, again the day to day details were very much my life. And um, and I never, if, if I had thought that Caught Stealing was going to be uh, published, I probably would have been self-conscious about setting my next book in the same, exact same environment. Um, but I never did think Caught Stealing was going to get published. It, you know, so it, was, it didn't matter. I started writing another book, and I was like, well, I enjoyed writing about this area before. I'll write about it again. Um, coming to New York or coming to California, what I found... Uh, Every Last Drop is the first book, Joe Pitt book, that I've written outside of New York. And um, actually, that's not true. I wrote most of Half the Threat of Blood of Brooklyn living here. But that was directly after we moved from New York. So I still had a New York feel very much. Hang on. By the time I started Every Last Drop, we'd been living here for a while. And I had to make a trip back. I had to go back for about a week and spend some time in the city and kind of get a feel for it again. Um, and I expect before I start the fifth book in the next month or two, I'll probably be going back for a visit to, you know, do the same kind of thing, kind of get the taste back, um, just have have a feel for it. Because Los Angeles is, as as everybody knows, it's the other other side of the coin. You know, it's another great American city, um, but it's a completely different sensibility here. Now, you refer to the Joe Pitt books as noirs, and I really agree. They, they really have the feel of these old crime books, and it's what's really, I think, makes them completely gripping is that while we feel we're reading something that maybe could have been written 50 years ago and have none of the supernatural aspects, it's clearly written now, and it has all these supernatural aspects overlaid on the crime. I'm wondering how much of the crime um, uh, plot drivers come from crimes that you ever read about that took place and how much you, you know, took out of research or out of stuff you read in the newspapers or that happened in your neighborhood that you heard about and ended up in the Joe Pitt books? Um, nothing specific, you know, nothing. I'm, I'm not a true crime buff, um, so there, there's just absolutely nothing that occurs to me off the top of my head. You know, I, I tend to, every now and then if I read something in the paper, um, or I catch a snippet of something, you know, online uh, that I think is particularly uh, gruesome or Joe-worthy, I'll put it in a file for things to glance at. But it's more general kind of nuance and and inspiration than it is specifics. I know, you know, in in the second book, in No Dominion, there's a a dogfight scene, and I... There was an article that I had read about about dogfighting that... um, that led to me writing that scene, although very little of, of the of the the very little of the details of actual dogfighting are incorporated into that scene at all. And I'm sure there there are other things, but it's more it's less the actual than it is. Uh, I'm less influenced by anything that any 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 reality than I am by reading uh, than reading Chandler and Hammett in particular. Um, and the most of the time when I'm writing uh, 
uh, when I'm writing a crime, when I'm writing a straight crime novel, when I was writing the Joe Pitt, the Henry Thompson book, or the Shotgun Rule, or the next crime book I have coming out, um, or the one I'm working on now, I avoid reading crime. I don't want to read any. I don't want to read anybody else's noir. I don't want to read anybody else's hard-boiled. I don't want to read crime novels of any type. Um, I don't want to have anybody else's ideas in, in my head at that specific moment. Um, with the Pitt books, I haven't read a single vampire or horror book of any type during the, the years that I've been writing the Pitt books, but I will, I will consciously pick up um, classic noir while I'm writing Joe. And, and read and read one, um, usually around the time I'm getting jo, a Joe Pitt book started, because it is so consciously homage or tribute or you know whatever written in that manner that I don't feel at all self-conscious about uh, about getting that flavor back. In the same way that, that taking a trip back to New York helps me to get a feel for New York, picking up you know uh, picking up uh, the Long Goodbye or um, the glass key, or, or even you know sometimes I'll 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 read some Hemingway short stories because he although it's not it's not noir it's there's a clippedness to it that uh, that I find helps when I'm writing a Joe book. One of the things that's most enjoyable about these Joe Pitt books is your the the humor the combination of humor and over the top horror it, it reminds me a bit of you know the Evil Dead movies and uh, I'm trying to think of the H.P. Lovecraft uh, the Herbert West uh, Reanimator <laughs> movies uh, those that kind of sen- humor sensibility could you talk about working that into the really over the top violence into the the more restrained noir world. Um, I, you know, again, this is, these are, it's, it, these are those things that, um, if I thought about them, I, I probably would have just, you know, been like a deer pinned in the headlights and <laughs> felt, felt, yeah, it just felt really awkward about, uh, can I do this? Should I do this? Can I get away with this? Will this work? Is it too much? Is it too little? I think with the violence, the, it, it was mostly just a, um, a re, a, you know, if your it's you know if your protagonist is a vampire, then you know you want. I mean, part of the reason to write a vampire story in the, in the first place, from my point of view, was to be able to just kind of immerse in a cool world. You know, where I wanted it to feel like if you shifted three or four worlds over, you might find yourself in this one. Um, so that there, so that there was a again a, an, a, an element of verisimilitude to it. But, uh, but still clearly, you know, in a, in a fantasy world. Um, but since, you're, since, since cool is kind of the order of the day, um, part, of that, part of that is having your you know, vampires do cool things and be capable of doing cool things. So once you, you, you buy into one of the classic cliches of the stronger, faster, tougher vampire, then by necessity, you know, the violence is, is going to be more brutal and... Um, and it's also, even though I say that the and believe that the books are primarily noir, um, there's still that horror element, which means you know splashing some red paint around. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so again, it was never like a a real. I didn't really think it think it through too much. It just was what came natural, and then I think some of the the. 
I think most of the humor that comes built into those moments has more to do with with Joe's attitude towards it and the way that he he tends to take a laconic attitude towards uh, uh, towards the, the most gruesome excuse me the most gruesome of activities um, and because he's so dry reflecting on these things there's you know there's there's humor that carries over but again completely I mean, I, very, I think we've we've talked about this a, a little bit in the past when we spoke. I very rarely uh, think in terms of wouldn't it be funny to. Um, I'm usually just kind of letting you know. I'm usually just telling the story, and uh, the the humor tends to be incidental. I, it's almost never intentional on my part. And sometimes I'm the things that people think are funny. I'm like, is that really? Oh yeah, it is funny, isn't it? Um, or it's, you know, I'll be surprised. And then on second retrospect, I'll go, yeah, that's, that's pretty damn funny, but, um, hardly ever what I'm, what I'm attempting. And generally speaking, as with, with most people, when I try to be funny, it, you know, usually fails miserably. Let's talk about your new book, The Mystic Arts of Erasing All Signs of Death. This one is set in the iconic city of Los Angeles, and you have a new character, Webb Goodhue. Tell us a little bit about uh, the differences between writing your kind of... This is a realistic mystery, or it's set in... There's no supernatural elements. So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about um, the differences between, say, the Hank Thompson books and these books, this book, where you've got a, a Southern California setting. Um. The the well the initial difference is the very off the top of my head the Hank Thompson book was kind of an unintended was the, the novel that I never intended to write it was you know I set that set out to write something and that I thought would be a short story and it and it grew into a novel and then I thought that that was it and that it would never see the light of day and then it saw the light of day and then that led to it being a, a trilogy um, this was much more a conscious choice on on my part to. A, I knew I was writing a novel. I knew that somebody was buying it. I knew that people would be reading it. Um, it was also the first, the first instinct, the first motivation I had to write this this book was to write a character that could be eventually a more traditional detective character. Um, I wanted to have my detective. Joe Pitt isn't really a detective. Plus, he's a vampire. Hank is absolutely not a detective. The shock and rule has nothing to do with that that kind of world. So I wanted to play with a with a detective character. I wanted to play with um, someone who is explicitly not a tough guy and who has no real potential to even evolve into a tough guy the way that that Hank did. Um, I wanted uh, so I wanted a lot of room to play with uh, a lighter touch. Um, not necessarily consciously trying to write funny books, but but books that were not as heavy, um, of much lower body count. Uh, Web Goodhue is a trauma cleaner, which means that when awful things happen involving bodily fluids, he's uh, a guy who goes in to clean up the mess. So there's often there are long, languorous descriptions of the after effects of of violence, but not a whole lot of uh, front row view of it. So you still got a lot of red paint. Um, there's still a lot of red paint, but it's mostly, you know, you see it after it's already dried. Um, so I, I, 
the, 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 in my head, what I, what I knew, what I was interested in was, um, I wanted to do my take on Jim Rockford. Basically, I was a huge Rockford Files fan when I was a kid, and, and I still love catching reruns of that show. And I always loved this very uh, human, uh, clumsy kind of star-crossed detective who was who was sharp, but um, things never really fell his way that often. And um, and I stumbled into the, an awareness of trauma cleaning and, and uh, decided that a great way to kind of open a series would be to have a character falling into this profession with the intention that as the next two or three, over the course of the next two or three books, he will stumble into more trouble, but that very early in the series it will become, he will become a more capable person where it's less that he's stumbling into trouble and more that people are coming to him with their troubles for him to help them with. And this is um, very much something that, in, in my mind, is an open-ended series where I would like to be writing not necessarily a book a year, but a book every two years. And with no destination in mind, I definitely want to keep pushing the character forward and growing character and the relationship. Um, and I don't want to try, I don't necessarily want to, you know, repeat the same adventure over and over again. But I definitely want it to just kind of be an open, loopy thing uh, where I can use a lighter touch because most of the books are, are, are even with the humor elements, you know, there, there is so much violence and there is so much darkness and, and some of that's accumulating in the books right now. Um, Mystic Arts has a fairly large amount of, of emotional weight to it because it deals with, with families and, you know, families are... Uh, you know, everybody's every, uh, everybody's family is help help me out here with the Tolstoy for the Anna Karenina. Uh, all happy families are the same. Unhappy families are are all different. Uh, my my take on that is that there really are no happy families when you get really right down to it. It's all unhappy <laughs> families. You know, everybody everybody's got got joy in their life, but there tends to be you know more things. There's there's always stuff that's effed up. Um, so that side of it tends to be a little bit heavy in these books, but they're less um, less about people, you know, few, few, fewer heavy, I don't know. Anyway. Less likely to find Angeles. a severed head, hey? <laughs> yeah, not, not as likely. And the I knew that I wanted to write a book like that before I came to L.A., and then once I moved to L.A., I very rapidly knew that I would be writing an L.A. book as, as soon as possible because it is another immersive environment like New York, um, not as dense, um, which is which is part of the immersion. There's uh, the sprawl um, opens up different parts of the brain. It's hard to it's hard to to, to describe because so much of it is just about the energy and the aesthetics of the place. Um, but it's a much more wandering, loopy place, whereas New York is you know uh, impacted. Um, and, and frenetic and, uh, and, and California, you know, as cliche, it's mellower. So it's, it's, and I think the book definitely reflects that environment, the tone and the, the storytelling. There's a, there, there is definitely an element of the shaggy dog story to Webb's first adventure. Now, you mentioned that this is going to be a series and you're working on a, a new book. Is the new book a sequel to this book? Is it another Webb adventure? No, it's a standalone um, 
I'm finishing finishing up a first draft right now. It's uh, it's a it's a it's a shift uh, for me. It is ostensibly a um, a crime book. The trunk the trunk of the story is very much uh, a crime. There's a, a murder has been committed and a and a cop is investigating it. Um, but there's a uh, speculative uh, fiction aspect to it as well. The world that it's set in is um, our world, our time, you know, to today, as by which I mean the day that the book is published. Um, and the the element that has gone awry in the world is that there's been a, um, there's a, uh, uh, an epidemic of a, uh, a prion disease, um, the primary symptom of which is, uh, is 100% insomnia. There is actually there's a disease called fatal familial insomnia. Um, it's a prion disorder, but it's extremely exotic. Um, it's found in like 48 family lines, and uh, most of them are concentrated in in Italy. Um, and then the in the latter sta- stages of the disease, the victims become um, completely insomniac, and they they cannot they just stop they lose the ability to sleep for the last few months of their lives. So this book is a Taking the idea that a disease, a similar disease or related disease, breaks out on an epidemic global scale, and that it is um, a more extended form of insomnia. So within this world of this plague of sleeplessness, there's a, a murder mystery that takes place. Um, stylistically, much less hard-boiled, much less noir than than the previous books. More straightforward in the storytelling. Um, now, uh, you've, got because, some, uh, you've got some science fiction elements in here, and I'm wondering if there are science fiction. You've talked about Hammett and, and Chandler. Are, are there science fiction authors that uh, speak to you in the same way for this book? For this book, um, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say that this book is heavily influenced by William Gibson, um, and particularly by his uh, by his most recent book, by Pattern Recognition and Spook Country. I mean, influenced to the point where it's kind of embarrassing. Where I had to, I, I, I sometimes flinch, you know, when I reread pages, and I'm like, well, I'm going to have to rewrite those. Um, <laughs> it, the, I had a, I had a, a, a desire to write something that was very immediate, and 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 about the world, but I wanted to, you know, push it into. Um, I wanted I wanted there to be certain intensities. I didn't realize when I started this that that the world that Armageddon was going to start without me, um, <laughs> and that I was going to need a a you know uh, uh, to to try and achieve it through fiction. I I should have known that I could just wait a couple months, and the 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 disaster that I required for the story to work would float along. Um, I'm, I presume you're talking about our our current the 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 yeah, Great financial. Depression too. <laughs> Yeah, Great Depression. I, I think it's going to, well, I, you don't want to hear, I'm, I, as anybody who's read the books knows that I've got a dark attitude. I don't think you want to hear my take on all of it. Um, well, yeah, no, good, you can't tease us like that. I do want to hear your take on it. I, I, could it be darker than mine? I don't know. <laughs> Rick, I, I think that it would be a good idea to, to move to uh, a place away from a major city, but still near a, a fairly densely populated uh, area, someplace that you can get to. Uh, uh, on a bicycle, uh, I think it would be good to have a a home that is near for a f- supply of fresh water, 
uh, not too far removed from the grid, but I don't know how important that's going to be. I think if you're a good gardener, that would be a good thing, and you might want to refresh yourself on uh, how to use a hunting rifle and, and how to uh, how to dress uh, a deer um, and, you know, maybe pick up a fishing pole. Uh, I, I think that, I think that we're going to have some trouble here. I, I think I'm, we're going to have some trouble I, here. I guess I'm well set. I'm right by the Monterey Bay. I just walked down there and uh, hollered a few <laughs> flounder at this there point. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not, I don't think that we're looking at a road warrior scenario here, but I definitely think that there are going to be uh, some, the, that the troubles are going to be more profound than, uh, than they appear at first glance, and I think that they're going to reach the, the street level relatively quickly. And I think I, my, my feeling is that in the next, uh, uh, I I think five to ten years may be optimistic, but um, the the um, the major governments of the world give give some, you know nation states give every indication of being uh, gutted that there's that there's very little about them that's substantial and and truly functioning anymore in the sense that they don't appear to really be capable of taking care of their citizens anymore. They're they're ineffective when it comes to terms of national defense. They are ineffective in terms of, uh, of maintaining an economy. They're ineffective in terms of maintaining an infrastructure. Um, and right now they appear to be doing, America in particular right now at the moment, seems to be doing everything in its power to uh, uh, speed this process along by throwing good money after bad. And instead of investing that money in, uh, in ground-level infrastructure works, try and, you know, rebuild the economy from the ground up, a, a, a solid economy, um, as opposed to trying to throw this money out here, which will just basically reinflate an artificial economy, um, but it won't really succeed in reinflating that economy because it's already dead. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the book that I'm writing now is very much about that, uh, which is not to say that it's, you know, an analysis of the economy or anything like that, but it is uh, a book about... Um, about a, 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 a cop trying to do the right thing in a world that is, appears to be disintegrating around him. And it's about, a, uh, about the choices that, that different people make. And, and within the book, there are characters like the cop who are trying to save the world. Uh, there are characters who have decided that the world is already ending and are, and are, don't care anymore. And then there are characters that believe that this world, is, is as we know it, is ending, or this society is ending as we know it, but that there will be something after that. And what do you do to prepare the way for the next thing? Um, so, so anyway, to get back to your original question, uh, William Gibson is uh, an influence uh, on, on this book particularly. There's also a lot of nonfiction that I've been reading that influences. Uh, Misha Glennie wrote a book recently called McMafia, um, uh, Brave New War by uh, John Robb. Um, it goes back a little bit, but looks on the uh, uh, low life, which also influences the Joe Pitt books, actually. Mike Davis, City of Ports. 
Mike Davis, uh, City William, of Courts. What a great book. Yeah. <laughs> um, William L. Fox, Making Time, um, two of the, you know, the great books about Los Angeles and about uh, kind of the, the future of the city. Uh, the World Without Us by Alan Wiseman, Imaginary Weapon by Sharon Weinberger. Um, those have all kind of, kind of, I've been swimming in a lot of nonfiction Again, consciously trying to avoid the, 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 the too much influence by other uh, fiction writers, but also to try and put myself in um, in a different mental state, a place worth thinking about the world. Which you know, by the time I finish this book, I may have a completely different take on all that stuff that I just said. <laughs> once I'm once I'm my brain is out of this kind of uh, this place, I may I may feel very very differently about the world and about about the country and about our prospects. Um, but you know, Rick, I actually need to, I need to wrap this up and get back to work on this sucker. I, I t- totally understand. I want to ask one last question. Do you Please. think before the economy collapses, we're going to see any of your work filmed? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, there's, uh, Joe Pitt is, um, was, has been under an option by a company called Phoenix Films and, uh, uh, They've actually extended the option. I know that they have a screenplay. I've actually read the screenplay by a guy named Scott Rosenberg, who's who's got a uh, his his uh, the credits that that I really like are uh, he wrote uh, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, and um, he did the adaptation of High Fidelity. He's also done a, wow. a ton of of big explosion uh, Jerry Bruckheimer action movies. Um, and and kids comedies, so he's really varied, and I really like what he did. You know, their, their take on it was thinking about Already Dead as the launching pad for a big, you know, action horror franchise. So the noir kind of el- the the language is still there, but the scale of the story has been has been jacked up so that it allows to blow some things up and stuff like that. Um, and I thought that he did a great job, and part of that is just, you know, being self-flattery because he kept a lot of my dialogue in it, so of course I'm happy with it. <laughs> uh, but I have no idea where they progress beyond that, that screenplay and what the prospects are. Any, the, what I have become aware of uh, it, it's, is that, you know, what you know on a gut level is, uh, is ten times as, or a thousand times as true, which is that any movie getting made is an enormous crapshoot. Um, and the odds, so the odds are that no, you will never see um, uh, a uh, any of these made. However, um, one of one of my readers uh, took a short, a tiny, tiny piece of microfiction that I did that I posted on my white website, and he and he made a little no budget uh, uh, digital video short film out of it. And if you go to YouTube. And try a search on Twitch and Spray, or go to go to my website pulpnoir.com and do a search on Twitch and Spray. You should get a link to uh, to the little short movie he made, which uh, it's it's you know like I say it's a zero budget tiny thing that they did literally in one night I think, and it it shows its budgetary constraints, but uh, but it's pretty cool, and it was uh, I was it gave me a smile to see it. And that'll that'll probably be the only adaptation that'll actually ever make it to the screen. So. That's the one to look for. <laughs> well, the screens we most like to watch your work on are the screens of our own minds as we read. I've been speaking with Charlie Houston. His new book is Every Last Drop coming up in January. We have The Mystic Arts of Erasing All Signs of Death. Thank you for joining me, Charlie. 
A pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.